Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, I'm Kate Simmons. I'm here to read to you today from my short story, Your Next Girlfriend. Your Next Girlfriend. Beverly's primary mommy to two cats and two dogs. Her ex-girlfriend is secondary mommy, and her ex's new girlfriend is tertiary. She refers to her beagles as himself and herself. Poor himself has such a teensy-weensy-weenie. Look at herself is burrowed under the bedspread. She says this too often and loudly. Her tuxedo cat she calls 4 by 4 and sings, 4 by 4 4 by 4 too fat to fit through the cat door. The 19-year-old tabby is named Pearl. I was godmothered in as new secondary mommy to the five animals, and remained so even after he put the butterscotch cat down. Once I moved in with her, I became aware of certain things. For instance, Bev made a lot of noise about her ergonomically incorrect chair at her new technical editing job in Silicon Valley. She made such a stink I feared she might quit her job over bad office furniture. Instead, she sent haughty emails to both the department head and the software behemoth's purchasing manager. Just a week into my stay, and after she got the versatile, ergonomic desk, chair, and keyboard, Bev suffered a partially torn rotator cuff. It happened in the park when she hurled a tennis ball at the beagles with a hot pink plastic chucker. She screamed at me and the chucker and the beagles. Playing golf, taking out the trash, grocery shopping, and diddling me right-handedly are out. Extra back scratches and massages for her are in. She marshals upwards of six pillows at bedtime. She takes the memory foam one for under her shoulder and the rest for elevating older sports injuries. The doctor prescribed Bev a generic Vicodin and sent her home with a large blue elastic band and a paper diagram of shoulder-strengthening exercises she was to perform daily. We laugh at the dumbed-down instructions depicting an emasculated man pulling the band, complete with large directional arrows. Each morning, to my delight, I witness her executing these exercises in the buff. Mmm, Gigi, Gigi, I say too salaciously, even for my own liking. I call her Gigi because I'm breast-obsessed because the department store lingerie lady recently fitted Bev for G-cups, after which her daily mantra became, you really ought to get fitted too. I watch her pinch the blue elastic band between the mirrored door and jam. Self-obsessed, she turns and pulls the band diagonally across her ample curves. Her symmetrical, regularly nursed G-rack with erect salmon-colored dime-sized nipple buds, which the Nordstrom lady surely noticed also, glides through my half-sleep. This bodacious pair is Bev's southern pride, devotedly worshipped for thirty years by many ex-girlfriends before me. Her downy pubes are the same orange of a Duraflame. I never tire of watching her from bed, and when I want to see more, I use the door's built-in mirror to view her backside. But it's the flaring of her nostrils and the admiring of herself and herself and her irresistible self during the pulling and releasing of ordinary prescribed elastic that really gets to me. Each morning this week is a perfect rerun of the last. I am sitting up in bed. I am rendered stupid just watching her. We are interrupted by click-clack on hardwood. A beagle has jumped down from her bed. Well, if it isn't herself, Beverly bellows. Both beagles' tails wag at this. Bev smiles at me. Her expression inexplicably sours as she catches my gaze. 
If I ever get breast cancer, you'll leave me, Bev accuses, if not before then. I go out for our coffee, order Bev a regular French roast with extra milk and me a double cappuccino. I like to look at the people in line. There's a woman with a stroller standing in front of me and both cups are passed to me lidless over the baby's head. I return to the house, Beverly's house. She bought it after her longtime ex-secondary mommy bought her out of their home. So Mary kept the Edwardian and Bev got a nondescript stucco house built in the 50s but in the same neighborhood. Plus she got custody of their animals. Beverly's house is built on an odd-shaped lot subdivided from an old railroad right-of-way. The house is rhomboid-shaped, skewed to one side so that the angles of all rooms inside are oblique. From the outside, the house is plain, adorned only with a thin wood trim around its windows. It has a tunnel entry with a black iron safety gate. She chose the Persian pink for its facade, a higher saturation of pink than she imagined from the swatch. The color vibrates against the celadon greenhouse next door, the harmony of the block interrupted. The original kitchen with a deep porcelain sink and O'Keefe and Merritt stove and a Frigidaire refrigerator on the second floor. The refrigerator keeps things remarkably cool and the icebox persists. The previous owner left its manual featuring a housewife wearing pearls, an apron, and long white gloves on its cover, which we love to marvel over. There is no dishwasher and the countertop is too low to install one. I find I don't mind doing the dishes. Her cats live in the upstairs guest bedroom. Bev keeps the window cracked to help with the smell. The plastic litter boxes sit on a wooden desk so the dogs can't eat their shit. The beagles have their own in-law apartment downstairs. They share a queen-size futon, a flannel-covered down comforter, and a dog door which lets out onto a long, wedge-shaped garden. They slobber and shed on every surface. Because her dogs and cats do not get along, they're allowed free roam of the house during alternate evenings only. Beverly has a calendar in place to give them equal time. On my way upstairs with the coffee, I hear the shower running. I open the bathroom door. There's a circle of talc on the braided rug where she dusts her pussy with the baby powder that I'm allergic to. She slides the glass door open and peeks her shower-capped head out. Bev in a plastic elastic hair bib always reminds me of my grandmother, only without dentures on the sink. I got you coffee, I say happily. Her face twists ungratefully. It won't be hot when I get out, she snarks. She doesn't believe in microwaves. At work, I received two emails from Beverly before lunch. I am fairly sure that the software behemoth has a pulse on the outgoing mail, but Bev doesn't care. She gets paid six figures for editing manuals. Each sentence goes through a million proper channels before approved. She finds time to write too many of these emails. I open mail number one. Subject, to-do list. Required, do it today, please. Call Zimmer, get contract, sign it, and fax it back. LASIK surgery, Dr. Dennehy, eye and laser center. Dr. Linderman for teeth cleaning. Diddle your bits. I open mail to Subject, your next girlfriend. Coffee was hot, and so are you, XX. Attached to the email is a picture of a huge dyke sitting on a chopper wearing not enough of a leather jacket to cover her ugly tattoos. Wednesday, Beverly's ex-girlfriend's secondary mommy comes for dinner. Bev prepares steak, a southern salad with sunflower seeds and corn on the cob. The salad is a favorite of mine, a family recipe passed down from her mother. Mary arrives. I open the wine immediately to deliver us from our sobriety. 
Following perfunctory greetings, Mary pulls out a scrapbook she purchased at the book fair, and we busy ourselves looking at yellowed pages filled with red wax circles impressed with family crest seals. This was not a typical vintage scrapbook with advertisements and postcards. Instead, row after row of equidistant red blobs cover the pages like a mysterious pox. We come to the last page. Mary returns the prized possession to her leather satchel, and we make the move to eat. Mary sits at one head, Bev at the other. I am in the middle. Bev rotates her corn over a soft stick of butter, and it leaves a toothy impression. Do you have corn skewers? No, we don't, Bev says. If you're going to have these special corn plates, you might want to buy some skewers, right? Mary looked to me for my thoughts on the matter. I mean, you have corn-shaped plates for the corn, so why wouldn't you have corn skewers? Mary pulled her chair in closer to the table with such veracity that the chair legs dig into the hardwood. She cut roughly into her ribeye. Beverly, this is too rare. I can't eat it like this. For God's sakes, it's bleeding like a menstrual teen. She stabbed her knife down in the middle of it to prove it. I dislike Mary. Her voice is whiny and her face is ferret-like and her IQ is off the charts. I smile and offer to saute it on the O'Keefean Merit. Mary nods a yes. I shoot a small pan with cooking spray and slide her steak into its center. I press it down with a spatula to make it sear faster, and it makes a sizzling noise. I sip wine and glance over at the two of them. They had been a couple for five years before they split. They shared a bed and had sex in a yellow Victorian. I've only been living with Bev a month. I wonder if we'll make it to five. You should have sliced it in the center, Barbara. Mary enunciated every syllable. Barbara. We like it bloody, I say. I put my arm around Bev's shoulders in solidarity. Who's Barbara? Barbara is what Bev's therapist used to call her, Mary said, because she could never remember Beverly's name. You're kidding. Barbara's not even close. No, I'm not. Her own therapist couldn't remember her name. I complained vehemently, but she kept calling me Barbara, so I told her if she called me that again, I wouldn't pay for the session. And then smack in the middle of a breakthrough, she did it again. So you didn't pay her? I poured Bev a new drink. I did not, and I never went back after that. I forked Mary's well-done steak from the pan onto her plate. I watch her bite into it and feel sullen. My steak is cold and gray. The only sound is of us cutting and chewing. I get a feeling that Mary doesn't like me, at least not with Bev, even though it had been Mary who had ended their relationship. I can't stand that, I say after Mary leaves. Can't stand what? The way Mary goes on and on and on about us not having fucking corn skewers. You don't have corn skewers, I mock Mary. She makes me nauseated. You mean nauseous. It's nauseous, not nauseated. You can't feel nauseated, Bev says. I'm in no mood to be corrected. This is the fifth or sixth time she's corrected me on this. I scrape red wax off the table with my thumbnail. Bev leaves the room and I hear her turn on the shower. Then I wash the dishes a chore Bev won't touch. She would rather eat from paper plates than wash dishes. With that in mind, I break one of her mother's crystal wine glasses. I pick up the pieces and hurriedly bury the evidence at the bottom of the garbage can. The next day I come home with a packet of eight yellow plastic corn skewers. I tear open the packaging and imagine Mary's stomach cramping from the undercooked food. Beverly told me about a holiday they had taken where Mary got so ill with food poisoning she could not leave their hotel room for a week. It happened in London. All of our plans were ruined. No one will ever complain that we don't have corn skewers, I mumbled to myself and tossed them in the spatula drawer.
we take Wellbutrin. The doctor prescribed two 100-milligram tablets per day, but Bev says she only needs one, so she gives me the other. We take them with wine. They are prophylactic for depression, she says. Look, the book came today. She shows me the cover with a freckled, doe-eyed kid on it. It came, I say, taking a sip and swallowing my pill. The book is The Mistress's Daughter by A.M. Holmes. Bev had ordered it before its release date. She was very excited about the prospect of reading an adoptee's memoir. First off, because she's a big fan of A.M. Holmes, and second, because she now has me, an adoptee, just like A.M. Holmes. I do feel odd. For the last few weeks, Bev has been overly fascinated with my biological status. Rains have come to the Bay Area, and we argue more than usual. Bev says she is unhappy with the Tempur-Pedic. Where it conforms to her body, it makes her too hot to sleep. She mourns her old, worn-out mattress and polyester pillows. We don't make love as much, and when we do, it is more or less lying side by side and taking care of ourselves. Her breasts are magnificent, but she seems unhappy whenever I call attention to them. She wants changes, which she calls suggestions. That I get a new job, read more literature, kiss only within the confines of her lips, and straighten my hair with a flat iron. Monday evening, Bev's mood is particularly sour. She pours an entire bottle of wine down the drain and complains bitterly. It's too sweet, she says. I can't help it. I'm a wine snob. It is a dry Riesling, which Bev had told me she liked. It is from a vintner, she said she liked, too. I picked it out especially, and it cost $26. I stare at her in disbelief. Where did her joy for me go? I slink downstairs to the guest bathroom and stare at my face, stay in there, leaning into the sink an inch from the mirror, examining roots and lines and scars. There's a deep frown line developing between my eyes. I rub my finger along it and think maybe I should make that appointment Bev suggested with her dermatologist to Botox it out. While admiring the rust spot at the drain in the sink as dynamic art, I think of how I got here in the pale blue-tiled bathroom in Noe Valley and living with Bev. More than 45 minutes pass in circular conversation with myself before I go back upstairs. When I enter the bedroom, I find Beverly reading her new book, The Mistress's Daughter. She places the memoir down in her lap and then looks up at me with contempt. Where were you? Downstairs, washing my face. For an hour? I get into bed. She strokes the book cover. Now I understand you, Bev says, and not kindly. I touch her leg with mine, but everything feels prickly. I try to remember the last time I shaved my legs, but cannot. I should really floss more, too. My dentist says, just floss the ones you want to keep. The sheets feel scratchy. Are these the new ones? The high thread count ones? Bev moves on top of me and begins kissing my mouth half-heartedly before moving too quickly down to my nipples. They grow hard involuntarily, but I don't otherwise respond. I close my eyes. I forgot to clean the litter box. I imagine sifting clumps from litter until she rolls off of me. What's the matter, Bev asks. Why are you such a bitch, Bev? Bev flares her nostrils. I'm not in love with you anymore. She juts her chin out and stares me down. Plus, I really think you should move out. I should never have asked you to move in with me in the first place. Then she turns her back to me, picks up the book, and resumes reading. What just happened? I can't breathe. This is where I live. I get us the coffee. I clean the litter boxes. My mail has been forwarded to this address. What about last night? Last night, you told me I could hang one of my paintings in your living room. 
and I bought you a ring and let you wear my favorite boots, even though you scraped the toes. Plus you wear down one heel, and I feel like I'm crooked now when I put them on. Reeling, I go downstairs and crawl in with the dogs on their futon. There's dog hair on the pillowcase, and the sheets are dank. I can feel each plank framing the cheap foam and lie in misery staring up at the ceiling. The beagles move up against me. I want to cry, but no tears come, nor sleep. There's no clock down here to tell me the time. I rub my eyes thinking about the injustice of it all until I hear the electronic garage door open and Bev's car pulling out. Then I stuff my belongings into trash bags and fill my Volkswagen with them. I run around the house again and again, opening closets and drawers, checking for my stuff. I decide to leave her the new sheets we bought together. I write Bev a note but destroy it after. A few weeks later, I hear from a mutual friend that Bev said after I moved out, at least she was good with the animals. It's true. I am good with animals. I once carried the female beagle in my arms up a cliff. Her black pads were burning from the hot sand on an abnormally hot day in San Francisco. I lovingly attended to one of the cat's eyes, weeping with infection. I pureed Bubba's food for him when he could no longer eat it solid for several weeks before he died. Twice daily, I scooped the cat poop. I made sure all of the animals, cats and dogs, always had clean water. A year has passed. I find Beverly on Match.com. I click her profile and read with surprisingly sweet nostalgia. Native Southerner, ex-New Yorker, confirmed San Franciscan. Essentially content but no stranger to melancholy. Sane with mild quirks and a talent for excess and moderation. Romantically versatile, which doesn't mean bi. Skeptical and hopeful, with a social conscience leavened by a trenchant wit that is cleverly disguised in this ad. Partial to realistic fiction, Greek mythology, film noir, long hikes, and smart women who flirt. Enjoy music at a reasonable volume, cooking for friends, and solving world problems over drinks. Bev's profile pictures are particularly good. Her eyes are so blue, her hair so blonde. There's one taken with 4 by 4 on the sofa and another with the dogs on the back porch. I type a short email to her. It says, yes, I was good with the animals. I click notify me when this message is read. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.